Let me just say it is awesome to see you guys back. It is spectacular. It has been a long time since we have seen many of your faces and some faces we are seeing for the first time. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here. Um, and we are so glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. Um, I know it's hot. I know it's warm. You may not be acclimated yet to a meeting outside. About half of us have been doing this all summer. So you may not know where the good spots are for the sun versus the shade. I just want to tell you, you will not offend me at all if you decide to get up and move to a better location during the service. You won't bother me at all. I'm used to four kids running around the house, so I will not be distracted at all. Let me also say, if you are with us and you did not get a scripture journal this morning, raise your hand and we will give you one of these totally for free. It's for you to take notes on, and we ask that you do bring it back with you every week. You can also take this with you to your gospel community group, which you may not be in yet, but we would encourage you to get in one. And this way you can just keep all your notes in one place and always have a place to reference our study in 1 Timothy uh, for the future to come. All right, let's get going this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover in three short verses. I want to begin by asking you uh, three questions that I hope will cause some introspection for you this morning. Are you here today on this hot Florida sunny day struggling to hold on to your faith? Are you here struggling to hold on to a good conscience? Are you here this morning concerned that you might only be one bad series of choices away from making a shipwreck of your faith? And maybe you answer no to all three of those. So let me turn your focus outward to those around you, to those who aren't here with us this morning. Do you know someone who is struggling to hold on to their faith in Jesus? Do you know someone who is struggling to hold on to a good conscience? Do you know someone who is only a series of bad choices away from making a shipwreck of their faith? I've now been a follower of Jesus for half my life, 22 years. Of those 22 years, I have been a pastor for 14 of those years. And one of the hardest things about being a pastor is watching people lose hold of their faith, suppress their conscience, and make a shipwreck of the faith they once proclaimed. But it's not being a pastor that makes it hard. It's being a follower of Jesus who genuinely loves and cares for other people, especially those of the household of faith. Over the years, I have seen people lose hold of their faith. I remember a story a decade ago of good friends of mine in my church in Seattle who said, you know, Daniel, our kids are growing up. We've really gotten them involved in activities and sports and a lot of other things, and it's just taking up too much time. And so we feel this is the best way for them to be personally developed. So we're going to go off and do all these things. But don't worry, as soon as they grow up and they are done, we will come back and join you. I can tell you that that didn't happen, that now their weekends are spent hiking the mountains and doing all the things because they posted all over Facebook for everyone to see. They have not returned to their faith. Over the years, I have seen others struggle to hold on to a good conscience. They have shown 
sin that is very explicit and very easy to see in Scripture. And they have said to me in one of many ways, I'm sorry, Daniel, but I just can't give up that sin. I'm sorry, Daniel, I just love that sin too much. I'm sorry, Daniel, that sin just has too tight of a hold on me. And on social media, I have seen countless people that I once hosted in my home, shared meals with, had in my community groups. I have seen them shipwreck their faith all over Facebook for the entire world to see. One, very painfully this week, a friendship of 15 years, and his faith is gone. Maybe you have seen this and experienced this as well. Maybe not. But please let me implore you to pay attention to these examples and to our text today so that you will not be one who makes a shipwreck of your faith. Nor will you be caught off guard when those you have known, loved, and prayed for and read the Bible with, sometimes for years, one day walk away from the faith not knowing if they will ever return. And I want to be honest with you, the the struggle to maintain one's faith is a struggle. And at times it can be overwhelming. Some of the mightiest men and women who are considered to be pillars of the Christian faith have easily and readily admitted to this struggle. Personally, as a follower of Jesus, who believes and proclaims that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man can get to heaven except through him, I understand how narrow and absolute this belief and proclamation truly is. I realize in this belief and proclamation that I am shutting out the whole world from even the possibility of getting to heaven except for those who have bowed the knee and confessed Jesus as Lord. I realize in saying this that I have declared that everyone else of every other religious or irreligious persuasion is wrong and will one day spend eternity in hell separated from God if they do not bow the knee to Jesus. And the gravity of the exclusivity of Christ has at times caused me to have a great struggle in holding on to my faith. I also want to acknowledge that the struggle to hold on to a good conscience can leave us feeling debilitated when we know that we have violated it. At times in my walk with Jesus, I have knowingly, willingly, and repeatedly violated my conscience. This has resulted in guilt, shame, and incredibly strong feelings of condemnation. And if not for the glorious grace of God, my faith would have been shipwrecked a long time ago. And maybe some, maybe you at some point in the past or even today can identify with each of these. Today, in case you haven't figured it out yet, we are going to talk about three things. Faith, conscience, and the shipwrecking of faith. But before we do, let's make sure we understand the setting from which our passage comes today. Over the last two weeks, as Pastor Kevin has opened up our series, 1 Timothy, we've entitled this Instructions to a Young Church. We have seen that Paul has discipled a young man named Timothy. Timothy has been with Paul for a while, but Paul has now left Timothy in the city of Ephesus, and Paul has gone on to Macedonia. As Paul has left, he has left Timothy in this situation where there are false teachers in the church who have crept in and they are trying to distract the church from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And this is something that Paul warned the church about in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, where he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so this has taken place, and now he's left Timothy in charge to do something about these false teachers within the church. This is the fountainhead from which the entire letter of 1 Timothy flows. And we can see it looking in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you see the two key words, faith and conscience, that Paul begins this introduction with. But he also closes his introduction with these same words, making sure that we understand what he is dealing with, what Timothy is dealing with in the church. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So in case it wasn't clear to us before, and it wasn't clear to you, then you now know, the audience, the congregation in Ephesus now knows the intent, the purpose, and the force of Paul's letter, and why he is writing these instructions to a young church. Now that we understand the background, let's look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So if you are taking notes, either with pen and paper or mentally, I want you to take note of these three words you should see up on the screen. Charge commission, and confirmation. That is what we find in the first half of verse 18. Paul tells Timothy, I am giving you this charge. You need to understand this is a word of great force. It is a word of great power. It is of great emotion. The, the, the picture you should have of your mind are two armies standing on a hill and the generals say, charge, and they are running into battle toward one another. This is the force with which Paul is imploring Timothy that he must now move ahead. And in that same way, he is reminding Timothy of the commission given to him. This word in trust, I have turned over to commission because he is telling Timothy, Timothy, this is your job. This is your responsibility. This is your duty before God. We have given this task to you and to you alone to carry this out. And Timothy, you need to know and you will need to remember that there is a great confirmation upon your life. For the men and the women of this church, we have observed your life and we have confirmed 
through prophetic words delivered to you that you are the one to carry out this task and to complete this task in the city of Ephesus to write what has been made wrong in the local church. And the reason that Paul does this is so that he can engage with Timothy, so that he can encourage Timothy, so that he can equip Timothy and empower Timothy to carry out the great and difficult task that lay ahead. And these three C's, this charge, this commission, and this confirmation would all be needed in order for Timothy to persevere with great endurance for the task that was before him. So now that we have understood what has been given to Timothy to do, his marching orders to carry out, which Paul will use as warfare language throughout this letter and in his second letter to Timothy that we will see in the coming months, you need to understand this great and mighty task that was before him, why he uses such strong and forceful words. Because Paul understands as much as any human being who has ever lived that what Timothy is going up against is warfare. Warfare of the most serious kind because it is spiritual in nature. Paul understands from great experience in his own life and in the lives of countless of other believers in all the churches that he has planted all around the world at that time, the people that he had discipled, there has been this enemy who is at war with the church of God. He has told them, because he's, I'm sure he's heard Peter say this, that we get quoted in 1 Peter 5.8, that Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul is intimately aware of the battle of spiritual warfare, and he reminds Timmy, Timothy, this is at the heart of what you will be dealing with in the city of Ephesus. And if you've never made this connection before, I want to make it explicitly clear for you this morning Think of where the greatest passage about spiritual warfare in all the Bible is written. In what letter is it written in? Ephesians. Where is Timothy at? He is in Ephesus. So it is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, that Paul has written a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's also written a letter to Timothy. But here in Ephesus, it has been expounded greatly upon and listen to what Paul says about spiritual warfare, the warfare that we are facing as followers of Jesus as we go on in this world. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Church, let me ask you a very serious question. When is the last time in your struggle to hold on to your faith, in your struggle with your conscience, and in your struggle with your faith being possibly shipwrecked, you openly acknowledged and realized that the battle before you and those you love so dear is spiritual warfare? When is the last time you have responded and reacted and gotten down on your knees with God's word and in prayer in the spirit, acknowledging that the battle taking place for your life and for your soul and for the lives and souls of men and women in this world is spiritual warfare? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it is precisely because of this great cosmic struggle that Paul uses the first word we see in verse 19, holding, holding faith and a good conscience. And the image that Paul is striking up here in the tone and in the imagery that he is using and that you should be well aware of is that of someone in an old rickety boat that they would have had back in the day. That the person would have been on the deck of this boat and they would have been holding on to the mast of this boat for dear life. That they are exposed to the wind and to the waves and to the thunder and to the lightning and the boat is being rocked back and forth to and fro. And the only thing keeping them from going into the water and perishing and losing their life is the fact that they are holding on to this mast for dear life and there is nothing that they will do to let this go because they realize and they understand that life and death comes in the holding on of this mast, which is the equivalent of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so that is when we speak of the faith of Jesus Christ, what he is saying to them, that you would hold on to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that you would hold on to the object of your faith. Let me make it very clear to you today, if you have never been told this, it is not the amount of faith that you have that will ever save you or anyone else. It is solely the object of your faith that will save you. If the object of your faith is Jesus Christ and what he has done upon the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection, then you understand who Jesus is. You have embraced Jesus as the object of your faith. And though the amount of faith in that may waver and may be rocked to and fro, as long as your eyes remain on the object of that faith, you know that you are safe and secure. In case the gospel has never been presented to you in explicitly clear terms, What makes Jesus and following Jesus different than every other system in the world, religious or irreligious, is that we as followers of Jesus openly acknowledge that we have sinned against a holy God and we deserve punishment. We deserve just punishment because we have sinned against a holy God. We know and we understand that Jesus 
lived the life that we should have lived. He fulfilled all the commandments of the law every moment of his being for 33 years. We know and we believe that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb prophesied about through the entire Old Testament that comes and offers his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He willingly gave up his life just like he said he would. He laid in the ground for three days just like he said he would. And three days later, he rose from the dead walking on this earth. And he preached and proclaimed to many that he was the Christ and the King before his death and after his death. And now he sits in the heavens on high, ruling and reigning over the universe. If this Jesus is the object of your faith, you can count yourself as one of the children of God. If this Jesus is not the object of your faith, the Bible says you are not yet a child of God, but we pray strongly that you become one. And I want you to understand this, especially in our present context. The enemy has one great tactic in his spiritual warfare, and it's fear. And what the Bible offers and what the gospel offers is faith. And so for the rest of your life, and all of your life up to this point, and until you draw your final breath, you will choose fear or faith. And I want you to listen in the coming days to the messages all around you. Fear, 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 fear. The virus, fear. The election, fear. If this guy wins, our nation's over. If this guy wins, our nation's over. That's what my Facebook feed tells me. What about the economy? Everything that the world throws at you, that the enemy throws at you, is based on fear. And you have a choice. You have a choice. You can embrace fear or you can embrace faith. Because the Bible tells me that the virus is not in control. Though it's real, it is not in control. The Bible tells me there is no president who is absolutely in control. The Bible tells me that there is no economy that is absolutely in control of my life. The Bible says things like this about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And one of my favorite verses, when I feel that I am listening to the message of fear, I always go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, the second part, because it tells us, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
Can you say that as you are walking in this life, you are walking in a way that you are living like Jesus is in absolute control of the entire universe? Faith declares that he is over and over. Just prior to that, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is given to the church to tell the church, to remind the church that in one word that Jesus used to speak the entire cosmos into existence, all of the matter that has existed from the moment He declared it to be, it is being held together, moving together, working together by one single word from Jesus Christ. So if you think that any president, any economy, any virus is stronger than that guy, you are sadly mistaken. Because that Jesus is king. And he is so confident in his kingship, and I love this image, because it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is not sitting in the throne room, pacing back and forth, going back and forth. What am I going to do with this person? What am I going to do? What am I going to do if Donald gets elected? What am I going to do if Biden gets elected? What if the economy crashes in America? What if this dictator does this? Jesus is not worried about any of those things. Because the Bible tells us that God turns the king's heart wherever he wills. He says that all kings and all rulers are subject to King Jesus. And so we can choose to walk in that faith or we can choose to walk in fear of the mainstream media, Facebook, Instagram, wherever it is you choose to get your news sources in this life. Fear says the fate of the world depends on who is elected president. Faith says the fate of the world is being ruled over by King Jesus. But you need to understand something. Up to this point, I've talked about the war going on outside of you and the things that you let inside. But there is also another war that takes place inside of us, and it is the war of our conscience. And I know, having been a college student at a great university in the Southeastern Conference, that there are many students on Sunday morning in church struggling with the conscience because of the decisions they made on Saturday night. If that's you, pay attention. If not, it'll probably be you next Sunday morning, okay? So, I want you to listen about conscience. Conscience is a very important and highly misunderstood subject in the world, and in the church. This is one that I did not really start to grasp until about 10 years ago. Uh, a, a speaker said something, and it, and it just revolutionized my thinking on it. And I'm going to try to communicate that to you. I want you to understand that Paul, in his 13 letters, uses this term over two dozen times, that when he's writing the churches, he continually brings up the subject of conscience because it is so critical to our walk with Jesus. Now, I'm going to read to you five statements about conscience. Don't try to write them down yet. We're going to go back through them one by one, but I want you to see them in their totality. I'm going to tell you this is total plagiarism. If you were in school right now and you didn't put a footnote to this in your paper, you'd get an F and you'd get thrown out of the university, all right? It's by a guy named Joe Carter. It's the best uh, five-sentence summation I've ever heard on the subject. Christians, you need to know this. Number one, conscience is an internal, rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. Number two, 
Conscience is a trustworthy guide only when it is informed and ruled by God. Conscience is to be subordinated to and informed by the revealed word of God. Number four, to willfully act against conscience is always a sin. Conscience can be suppressed by sin. Point number five. Okay, conscience is an internal rational capacity that bears witness to our value system. I grew up in a very strict, legalistic household where I was taught right from wrong. It may not have been the right right or the wrong wrong, but I did, I did have this conscience in my mind of that there definitely was a right and wrong. There was no gray middle. So for me, I thought conscience was just this thing that everybody had. It was just kind of on and off switch, and everybody knew the baseline of conscience. And it was not until about 10 years ago hearing a guy speak that, that I realized conscience is, is more like a dial that every human being has specifically tuned in their life. So if you imagine this big dial up on a board that is your conscience, you need to know that on another board, there are at least 100 other dials. And these dials are your life experiences. They are the things that you have been taught by friends, by family, things you've been told in school. Every moment of your life is fine-tuning and dialing in this bigger dial called conscience. That's why out of the 100 plus people that are here today, we all will disagree about things because our conscience compels us to believe one thing is right and one thing is wrong. We may agree on 90 things and disagree on 10 of them. And it's because of the way our conscience has been dialed in. And so you need to know that your conscience is turned like a dial and can be moved and shifted. And this is why there is such a variety of consciences unique to every individual in the world today. Point number two, conscience is a trustworthy guide only when it is informed and ruled by God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you are asking yourself, can I trust my conscience? Or if you want to trust your conscience more or better, it must be informed and ruled by God. Point number three, conscience is to be subordinated to and informed by the revealed word of God. Now, I want to tell you, this is where many people, believers and non-believers, make great mistakes by elevating their conscience above the word of God and therefore break the first commandment where God says, you will have no other gods before me. In, in this case, many times we elevate conscience above the revealed word and will of God when we say things like, well, I could just never worship a God who and fill in the blank. And so many people today have elevated their conscience by saying, I could never worship a God who takes claim for the natural disasters that happen in the Old Testament. All those passages where God said he brought death and destruction to people, I could never worship a God like that. If you've done that or if you're doing that, you have elevated your conscience above God. Many people today, I could never worship a God who so narrowly limits sexuality being pleasing to him as in heterosexual monogamous marriage. I just couldn't worship a God like that. 
And what they've done is they've appealed to their conscience to say, my conscience won't allow me to do it, but yet they've elevated their conscience above the word and above the will of God. I could never worship a God who was so narrow and said that Jesus was the only way to get to heaven. That God just seems so mean and cruel. And so when you hear people do that, realize they are appealing to their conscience. And we need to deal with them in their conscience and help them turn the dial of their conscience so that they can bring it into subordination to and that it can be informed by the revealed word of God. Number four, to willfully act against conscience is always a sin. And I will use a silly example to illustrate this. Let's say for the moment that the Bible declared that all forms of dancing were sin, which it does not. But let's say you believe the Bible said that. And you then chose to go out square dancing every single Saturday night and violating your conscience. Even though the Bible doesn't say that, even though it's not actually a sin, if you in your conscience believe something is a sin and violate your conscience, the Word of God says for you, that is a sin. You have missed the mark. And it says it very clearly in Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And the entire context of that passage in Romans 14 and 15 is about the issue of conscience that they were dealing with in the early church. Number five, conscience can be suppressed by sin. This is going to move us toward the final idea about the shipwrecking of our faith. If you continue to violate your conscience enough, you can eventually suppress your conscience to where you are no longer affected when you sin. The Bible says you can actually sear your conscience. You can totally cut it off. And Paul's going to say that in 1 Timothy 4.2 as we get into the letter. He's going to say, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars who, whose consciences are seared. So you can suppress your conscience long enough that you can sear it and cut it off to where you are no longer affected. And that's why we ask, and we, and we ask with incredulity sometimes, I cannot believe this person did X. Many times it is because their conscience has been seared. And there is no conviction in their life of the great sin that they have committed against God and against man. We all understand this struggle with conscience. We have all knowingly and willingly at some point in our lives violated our conscience. Right now, there are things in your life that you believe are right that the Bible says are wrong. Do not elevate your conscience above the Word of God or above God Himself. But guess what? There are also things that you believe that are wrong that are actually right but it's because you haven't been informed by the Word of God that you can then take that and set your conscience at ease. Something your friends and your family told you growing up was wrong and was a sin, and you realize, that's not a sin. But yet your conscience can still be deeply convicted because of the way that it's been dialed in. My parents were raised 
in a way that if you brought in any secular music to the house, you were a devil worshiper. I brought a piece of very clean, by today's standard, secular music into my house. I thought my dad was going to punch me in the face when I was in ninth grade. Because his conscience had been dialed in that if you brought in any secular music to a home, it was straight from the pit of hell. My dad was wrong about that. There are things in your life and in other people's life that you've been told that aren't actually sin. Only the Word of God can inform you whether it is or not. Only in your wrestling with the Spirit and praying can you discern that it's not. But I want you to understand some. The intention of a conscience that God has given you is intended to bring freedom to your minds and to your lives. Because see, if you dial in your conscience with the Word of God and you obey that conscience, you can live the abundant life and the freedom that Jesus has said that he will give you, offers to give you, and wants to give you. But yet you know very well, like when it says in Hebrews, let's leave the sin behind that so easily entangles us. You know that when you sin and that conscience starts to work on your mind and you start to feel that conviction, you know how bound up you can get. You know the times you have spent hiding in your room, hiding in your bedroom, wanting to shut out the world, not talk to anybody because you have violated your conscience and you are not walking in freedom. Now, let me say to you, as a child of God, remember this. Anytime you find yourself under conviction for your conscience, it should not lead to your condemnation. For the Bible declares in Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for you. But you need to understand that when you violate your conscience, when you sin against your conscience and you sin against God, what Satan will come at you with is condemnation. But for the Christian, there is no condemnation, but yet there should be conviction. And you need to realize that and hold on to that for one of his tactics is to make you think that your conviction is now your condemnation. Don't take hold of anything that God doesn't say you need to carry in your life, especially something as heavy as condemnation that will weigh you down and can destroy you with depression. Church, let me say to you, if you do not wage the good warfare, if you do not hold on to your faith and a good conscience, then you will eventually shipwreck your faith. And so to those today who are struggling, let me say this to you, repent and believe the gospel. To those who in the coming days will struggle, let me say this to you, repent and believe the gospel. For it is the gospel, it is Jesus Christ who has set you free and will continually set you free as you walk in this life away from sin and toward Him. And in this last passage, this last section here about these two men being handed over to Satan because they have made a shipwreck of their faith, you know, we could preach a whole series of sermons on this one and I'm going to give it to you in five minutes. I want to point out just a few key things to you. And I want you to understand the shifting sands of culture and how this affects the perception of this passage. How I would have preached this passage 10 years ago is totally different than how I'm going to preach it today because of the shifting sands of culture. 10 years ago, when I was pastoring a church in Seattle, all the message out there, the rage was 
Tolerance and inclusion. Tolerance and inclusion. Tolerance and inclusion. Now you look on your social media feeds today. Do you see anything about tolerance and inclusion? Yes, you do? No, No. right? It's us against the other guy politically. It's us against the other guy. True Christians would do this. True Christians would do that. How could you do this? How could you do that? I have not heard tolerance and inclusion since our current president has come into office. But you need to know for the previous decade, that was the dominant theme and message promoted by post-modernity. Because now it's shifted to cancel culture, right? We don't tolerate bad opinions. We don't include people who have different opinions. What we do is we cancel anybody who doesn't think and act like us. How quick the sands shift in our culture. And we have to be aware of these things. Because if I would have preached this message in a church 10 years ago, people would have been appalled that I would ever think of removing someone from the church for being a false teacher. No, you've got to be nice. You've got you you to be nice to them. You've got to keep them in. You, you can't kick them out. We don't do that. We include everybody here. Where now, the moment you disagree with somebody, you get canceled from a tweet that you made back when everything was about tolerance and inclusion. Let history be an incredible teacher to you. If you post it on social media, there's a 50% chance you're going to get fired from your job one day. Just let that be a lesson to you in your life. Because culture will shift again in five to 10 years, and the things you post today, somebody's going to go look up, and they're going to fire you for it. That's how culture works. These two men were false teachers in the church. We as the pastors of the church, the elders of the church have a responsibility to remove those who are false teachers and are, who have shipwrecked their faith and are attempting to shipwreck the faith of others. Whether this comes in an openly teaching false doctrine or in an openly immoral lifestyle. For in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Paul had removed a man from the church for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And he does this for the benefit of all involved. If you ever, and we're telling you this as a young church, because you're going to get into a church one day, and there will be a situation where someone gets removed from the church, and you're going to say, what do, why are they doing this? You need to understand it is for the saving of that person's soul, and it is for the saving of the church as well. It is not done in hate. It is not done in spite. It is done out of protection and love. There are three times in my pastorate that I've had to remove people from the church and say, you are not welcome here. One guy, because he wanted to be my teacher. And he said, Daniel, if you'll just let me be your teacher, God will pour out all this blessing on you and your church. And he was trying to promote all these false doctrines. One guy who was, we had told, Leave women alone. Because the things he was saying and doing was highly inappropriate. But for the protection of those women, after three warnings, as the Bible tells us to do, we had to remove him from our church and say, you are never welcome back here until you repent 
and believe the gospel. This is never done out of hate and spite, but for these men, it was done to them so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. And I think it's very important that Paul lists this sin, because he doesn't always list the sin. But in this case, he does. And if you look back in verse 13 of chapter 1, what is the first sin that Paul lists when he says that he was the chief of sinners? Blasphemy. Paul was not removing them because this was, he was being high and mighty. Paul knew this was a great sin from his own past and from his own life. But he knew what a dangerous sin it was and therefore he knew that it had to be removed from the church. So Paul does this not out of hate, but out of grace, out of faith, and out of love for God and for his church. Paul's desire wasn't to cancel these guys, but it was so that they would learn not to blaspheme and come to know the true grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So as we sit here today, and as you ponder this message today and in your gospel community this week, ask yourself, how is your faith? How are you holding on to your faith? How is your conscience? If there's something troubling you in your conscience this week, talk to your gospel community group about it. And please do this so that you will not one day shipwreck your faith. For there are many people in my life who I never thought would walk away from the faith, who I have seen walk away. There are those of you who are sitting here today that in 10 to 15 years, you will have shipwrecked your faith. You need to know the invitation to come back is always there. But you need to know the road is really long and really hard if you shipwreck your faith. Recognize and realize that the war going on around us, inside of you, outside of you, and in the world today is spiritual warfare. The great enemy that we are fighting, it's not one another. If your chief fight is against an atheist, against a Democrat, a Republican, or a Libertarian, if it's against this president or that president, you've taken your eye off the ball. If your enemy is the person who wears a mask or doesn't wear a mask, you've taken your eye off Jesus. People are not our enemies. Satan in the spiritual realm is the true enemy. And the sooner we realize that and wake up to that, we can actually make progress in seeing the prayer that Jesus prayed to his father your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 